If you have an Old Testament with you, go ahead and be turning to, to Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel chapter 37, that's where we will begin our study this morning. The book of Ezekiel, if you take the time to go through and study in the context of when it was written, is a very interesting study. If you remember, just for a little bit of background, Ezekiel was taken into captivity, into, into Babylonian captivity rather, about 597 B.C. And he prophesied for the Lord for about 22 years. Some of the contemporaries of Ezekiel were Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, although they worked in different areas of uh, Babylon. But what makes Ezekiel unique among the prophets is that how he was used by God. What God did is he used Ezekiel as a sign to the people. What God would do is he would give his message to Ezekiel, but he would also give Ezekiel a sign to perform, to show his message to the people. If you remember, it was Ezekiel who laid siege to a model city for 430 days. One of the visions, one of the, the prophecies that was given to Ezekiel is found in Ezekiel chapter 37. And to me, it's one of the most interesting because you just put yourself in Ezekiel's position as he looks at this vision, as he receives it. And you can imagine how powerful it was. Let's read it together, Ezekiel chapter 37, beginning in verse 1. Ezekiel writes, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord, and he set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. He caused me to pass among them round about, and behold, there was very many on the surface of the valley, and lo, they were very dry. He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Again he said to me, Prophesy over these bones, and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God of these bones, or to these bones, Behold, I will cause my breath to enter you, that you may come to life. I will put sinews on you, I will make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin and put breath in you, that you may come alive and you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied there was a noise, and behold a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked and behold, sinews were on them, and flesh grew and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they come to life. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they came to life and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Imagine being Ezekiel. God is taking you to this valley, and it's full of these dried, sun-baked bones, and God says, prophesy to the bones and tell them to come together and that they will come back to life. And can't you, can't you almost see it? Ezekiel prophesies to them and then it's just, there's, a, there's a silence. And then all of a sudden that, there's, there's a noise. You look down, those bones begin to rattle. They begin to shake and all of a sudden he sees them and they start joining together and it, then they're, they're being joined together and these, the, the muscle is forming upon them and the next thing that Ezekiel knows, where he was standing in a valley full of dried bones, he's now standing in a valley that has these bones that have all been brought together in these skeleton forms. And then God says, you tell them, you tell the breath to come and see them. Because they weren't alive yet. 
they were all joined together. They were they had all been brought back together, but they weren't alive because the breath was not in them. And then God tells Ezekiel, you speak to the winds, and the breath came in them, and then there stood before them this exceedingly great army. What's the point? What's the point of the vision? The point of the vision that God is having Ezekiel make is that he was going to restore life to his people. He would take the bones that had been his people, and he would breathe life into them again, and he would make them back to what they used to be. I believe there's a great lesson in this for us. I believe there's an excellent lesson in the fact that sometimes in our life, there comes a time when we need the breath of life breathed back into us. That there's a time when we need our life restored. And so that's what I want us to talk about this morning. I want us to talk about restoring life. As God so so adequately set it up here with Ezekiel and, and gave him this vision, I want us to talk about that in the backdrop of that vision. I have several points, but I've been told I can't go over more than ten minutes. I'm not going to get to all my points this morning. More than likely, I'll probably get to two of them. But maybe, Lord willing, this evening we can continue and finish up the lesson. I want to begin this morning by talking about restoring the life of a Christian. When I say restoring the life of a Christian, what do we automatically think of? We automatically think of restoring the life of someone who has fallen away. And that's true. That's one of the greatest things that we could ever do for someone. In Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1, Paul talks about this idea of restoring a brother. He says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a man in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you be tempted. There's no greater gift that we could ever give to someone than to help them realize their condition outside of Christ and to help them come back to Christ. James chapter 5 and verse 20, James writes, Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. There is no monetary gift, there is no physical gift or material thing that we could ever give to someone that would be as important to them as helping them come back to Christ. If we stop and think about it, how many friends do we have or how many family members or how many former members of this congregation do we know of that are no longer faithful to God? What better thing could we do for them than to help restore their lives to Christ? By helping them breathe again the breath of life that comes from God. What greater thing can we do for them? I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this particular point. I want to talk about it later. But think about think about all the things that we do for people. How giving we try to be of our time and of our money and of our material things. How about the gifts of life that we can offer to them? Not because it's ours, but because God gave it to us. Like I said, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because I want to focus on this other point. And the idea of restoring the life of a Christian, have we ever thought about the fact of restoring our own Christian life? About breathing again the breath of life into our own self. Well, why do we need to do that? We're here. We're here on Sundays. We're here on Wednesdays. We're here for Bible class. I'm here listening to the sermon this morning. Why do I need to be restored? Well, before we think that, let's remind ourselves of Mark chapter 11. Do you remember the story that, that, that we read about in Mark chapter 11? How Jesus is, is walking along and he sees a fig tree off in the distance and Jesus is hungry and he wants something to eat and so he's going to go to the fig tree and he's going to get figs off of it. But once he comes close to the tree, what does he find? He finds that the tree is has leaves, it appears to be alive, but what is it lacking? It's lacking fruit. 
there are no figs on the tree. So what does Jesus do to it? He curses the tree and causes the tree to die. At first glance, from a, from a, from a distance, the tree appeared to be alive and thriving. However, the true life of the tree was what? It was in producing figs. If it is not bringing forth fruit, the tree is not truly alive in its fullest sense. Well, the same thing, the same application can be made to us in our own spiritual life. From the outside, we can appear to be alive. Every one of us can appear to be alive. We can be here every Sunday and Wednesday. We can show up for Bible class. We can do all the things that appear to have the, the signs of life, but we can be dead. Perhaps we don't do a lot of the grossly immoral things that people do out in the world. We make sure that we, that we don't say the, the things we shouldn't say. We don't do the things that we shouldn't do. Does that necessarily mean that we are alive in Christ? In order to truly be alive, we must be bearing fruit for Christ. Turn over to John chapter 15 with me if you have your New Testament. In John chapter 15, Jesus talks about this very aspect. The fact that if we are going to be glorifying God in our life, we have to be bearing fruit. Not simply appearing to be alive, but being truly alive in the fullest sense because we are bearing fruit for Christ. John chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, reading through verse 8, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it will bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this. Here's the key that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Our glorifying God, the, the, the way that we can glorify God the most is not simply by going through the motion of appearing to be alive, it's by bearing fruit unto Christ. What type of fruit are we talking about? You can probably sing the song with me, can't you? The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith. Bearing the fruit of an active child of God. Having life in Christ, brethren, is more than sitting on a pew every Sunday and Wednesday. Having life in Christ is being active in His kingdom. Having life in Christ is being fruitful unto Him. It's producing the type of fruit that we talk about that He's talking about here that we read about in the page of the New Testament. It means active service in God's kingdom. We have, to be, we have to be on guard constantly. Being aware of the signs that may come that show us that perhaps I'm not as alive as I may think. Apathy and laziness when it comes to the Word of God, or the work of God, rather. Having no desire to study the Word of God anymore. Having no desire to stop and spend time praying to God on a regular basis. Being more focused on worldly things. We're more focused on our jobs or more focused on school, or more focused on recreation, or money, or whatever it may be. These are all warning signs. In Isaiah chapter 1, God, God through the prophet Isaiah, tells the people He has had enough of them. 
Why? Because they were no longer alive, but they were appearing to be alive because what were they doing? They were going through the motions of serving Him. They were going through the motions of worship. In Isaiah chapter 1, beginning in verse 10, listen to the words of the Lord as He speaks to the children here. Hear the words of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What, had your multiplied sacrif- what are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assembly. I cannot endure the iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply uh, prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. He says, wash yourself. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil from deeds from, from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. What was the problem? God had gotten to the point where He detested their worship. Why? Because their worship was not true worship unto Him. It was an act. It was an outward appearance of being alive. It was an outward appearance of worship. But what really was it? God saw through all that. Look at, the, look at how He speaks to them. I detest the worship that you bring to me. If we're not careful, God can say the same things to us. Have you thought about it? Think about it in these terms. Think about if, if we allow ourselves to fall into this, if we, if we are not truly alive and bearing fruit, if we are not truly alive and doing, being active in the service of God, you know, you know how we could read this? God could say to us, don't come and sing to me anymore because you don't mean it when you sing. Don't come and pray because I know your heart's not in it and you're truly not trying to communicate with me. Don't come and partake of the memorial of my son because I know you're not thinking about him and you're not respecting him and you don't fully appreciate the, the, the sacrifice that he made. We don't want to be in this category. We don't want to be. We don't want God looking at us in this way. So what do we do? We make sure that we are alive. We don't just simply go through the motions in our life. We don't simply go through the motions in our worship. We make sure that in our life we are bearing fruit unto God. Because if we're not, we can clearly see how God views those who are not bearing fruit. So how do we breathe life? How do we do it? How do we make sure that our life is restored? Well, the first thing I would submit to this is that there has to be a daily communication with God. A couple of the warning signs that we mentioned a minute ago was, was no desire to study and no desire to pray. If we want to breathe life back into ourselves, we spend time every day reading and praying. Why do you think that Paul encouraged Timothy to spend time he said, till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine. Why did he encourage Timothy to read? Because that's the bread of life. Why do you think Paul spent so much time in prayer? 
you read through his, through his epistles as he writes to the churches at Ephesus and Galatia and Philippi, and as he writes to Philemon, and he writes to all, you read through his letters, and what do you find time and again? Paul saying, you are constantly in my prayer. Who do we always think about as a model of prayer? Daniel. And Christ, spending hours upon hours in prayer to God. Why? Building that relationship with God. But once we, once we establish the communication, once we daily are reading and praying, perhaps one of, the, one of the greatest things we can do to restore life, to make sure that we are breathing the breath of life, is by being active in God's service. What is our purpose in life according to the book of Ecclesiastes? Our purpose in life is to serve God and to keep His commandments. Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 13. Brethren, I will submit to you if we are busy about, or if we are, excuse me, if we are busy doing the Lord's work, if we are constantly surrounding ourselves by doing the Lord's work, our body will stay refreshed and vibrant. If we are constantly pursuing the things that are talked about in 1 Timothy 6, if we are pursuing righteousness and godliness and faith and love and patience and gentleness, if we are always striving to add to our faith virtue and knowledge and temperance, and the things that, that Peter talks about in 2 Peter chapter 1. If we are constantly being about the work of the Lord, seeking to do good, always trying to find a place where we can serve, where is the time for our bodies to become deprived? Where is the time for our body to break down? There's not going to be any time. Because we're always active, we're always vibrant in the work of, in the, work of the Lord. And there's always things to do. There's always work to be done. See, brethren, if we want to restore our life, if we want to build our life back up, and if we want to be bearing fruit unto God, then we have to get out there and we have to do it. We have to determine in ourselves that we want our relationship with God to be strong. We have to determine in ourselves that we are going to be bearing fruit, that we are going to be working. We're not going to sit back and wait for someone else to do it. We are going to go and work. There's an old saying, I, I, you don't hear it very much anymore. At least I don't saying that the idle that, that idle hands are the devil's workshop. I think that applies in our spiritual life. If we're sitting around and we're just being idle in our service, we're not actively out there on the front lines doing the work of the Lord. We are we're opening ourselves up for that life to be sucked out of. For that breath to be taken away. I should have told you to keep your finger in, in Ezekiel chapter thirty seven because I want to go back there. Because I want you to, I want us to, to consider the explanation that God gives to Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 37, beginning of verse 11, he turns around and he explains the vision to Ezekiel. And there's a key phrase that we're going to read, but I want us to read beginning of verse 11. Here's the, here's the vision explained to Ezekiel in chapter 37. Ezekiel writes, Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope has perished. We are completely cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves, and I will cause you to come, out, or to come up out of your graves, my people. I will bring you into, this, into the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves and caused you to come up out of the graves, my people. Here it is, verse 14. Listen to this. 
I will put my spirit within you, and you will come to life. And I will place you on your land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and done it, declares the Lord. What an amazing thought. What a wonderful thought that God can breathe life into us and can make us vibrant and active again. I will put my spirit in you, and you will come to life. Do we feel do we feel like maybe the breath of life has gone out of us a little bit? Do we feel like maybe our service has, has leaned a little bit? Do we feel like perhaps we need to be restored? Do we feel like we need to be invigorated again? Do we feel like we need to be pumped up and we need to be pushed on? I will put my spirit upon you and then you will come to life. Are you ready? Don't you want that? Don't you want that life in you? Don't, that want, don't you want that breath in you and that excitement? what God is offering. That's what God can give. But there's more to it than simply restoring, or there, there are more aspects of it, more than just restoring a life of a Christian. What about the idea of restoring the life of the church? Before I go on, I want to say this. The things that I'm about, that I'm about to talk about, I don't necessarily think that these things are a problem at this congregation right now. Not to say that they can't be. But Joellen and I love being a part of this congregation because this congregation is full of what? Because this congregation is full of excitement and, full, and it is built up and is working. But that doesn't mean it will always be that way. Because I think we all know of congregations where the life has been sucked out because they've become distracted. And so what I want to talk about here is more of a, are more of warning things that we need to be thinking about and we need to be aware of. And I pray that the elders are thinking about them and I pray that we are thinking about them because we don't want to be the congregation where at one point there was life, but now it appears to be dead. You know where I'm thinking of, don't you? Revelation chapter 3. The church at Sardis. You think about the things that, that, that Christ said about them in Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. He writes to, to the church at Sardis. To the angel of the church of Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which are about to die, for I have not... For I have not found your deeds completed in my sight, or in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard, and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what hour I, I come to you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. What a compliment it would be. What a great thing it would be for the Lord to look at the congregation at Franklin and say to us, you are alive, you are fruitful. I look at you and, and I see faithfulness. How terrible would it be for him to look at us and say, I look at you and you have a name that you are alive, but you were dead. What had happened to the church at Sardis? They had been alive. 
But what does he say to them now? You are dead. What would we say? What could we say? When, he, when, when we know that God can look into the heart of our family. Just like with our, with our own Christian life, there are signs. There are things we should look for as warnings. And, and these, I, I pray that our shepherds are looking for these. But we should all be aware of these. We should all be looking for things. What about the sign when saints are more concerned with reputation than with character? They're more concerned with the outward appearance than with the true work that is going on. Do you remember when, when God had rejected Saul from being king and he was going to appoint the next king and we all know who that was going to be. It was going to be David. And how God sent Samuel to anoint one of the sons of Jesse, but he didn't tell him which one. And do you remember the story how Samuel was there and the sons of Jesse passed before him and each one of them was, was big and they were handsome and Samuel thought, well, surely this is the one or, or surely this one's the one. And do you remember what God told Samuel? Remember what he said to him? He said, do not look at his appearance or height or stature because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. Sadly, I think we all, we all are, are familiar with congregations who have become so enamored with impressing others that they focus on the external. They focus on the, the impressive facility or the big numbers or the entertaining worship at the expense of focusing on, as Jesus talked about in Matthew 23, the weightier matters of justice and mercy and faithfulness. They are alive in their own mind. But in reality, in, in, in the shadow of the Word of God, they are dead. Now, do we have to be aware of that? That is a temptation that is all around us. To become more focused on making sure that our building is filled and that our building looks nice. But do we do that at the expense of preaching the gospel? Or building up the family of God? We have to be, we have to be on guard against those things. We have to be aware that those temptations are out there. When worship services become more of going through the motions than heartfelt. Again, I, I, I focus you back to Isaiah 1. God told them he detested their worship because it wasn't the heartfelt worship that he wanted. Again, the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 2, Jesus, or the, Jesus is talking to the church at Ephesus. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 2. He says, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you have found them to be false and you have perseverance and you have endured for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. All of these things are great, but I have this against you, verse 4, that you have left your first love. Our worship to God cannot be mechanical. It cannot be a routine. It cannot be just simply going through the motions. We, if we do that, we're, we're in the same boat as the people in Isaiah 1. What does God want from us? He wants heartfelt worship. He wants us to think about the songs that we are singing. He wants us to pray together. He wants us to worship together. He wants us to be, when we come together, worshiping Him and uplifting His name and praising Him. Not simply being here because, well, we have to be here. 
again, there are congregations that we know of, and, I, and again, I don't believe that this is that this that that we are at this place, but we can get there if we're not careful. There are congregations that have simply set up shop, and they keep house for the Lord. They assemble like clockwork, but their heart isn't isn't it. The warning that we have to be aware of is we can get to that place. We can have the life of our worship gone. And God look at us and say, at one point you were alive, but no longer. How about the fact when local church members turn a deaf ear to the truth? I'm going to read to you from Ezekiel. You don't have to turn back there, so I realize I've probably got you in Revelation now, and you have to turn all the way back to the Old Testament again. But listen to what Ezekiel was told. As the people would still come to Ezekiel, and here's what they would do. And they come to you as people come, and they sit before you as my people. They hear your words, but they do not do them. For they do the lustful desires expressed by their mouth, and their heart goes after their own gain. And behold, you are to them like a sensual song by one who, uh, by one who has a beautiful voice and plays well on the instrument. For they hear your words, and they do not practice. What did he say they came they, they have lustful desires expressed by their mouth and their heart goes after for their own gain. When a, con- when, a, when a group of God's people turns a deaf ear to the truth, they put themselves on the road to losing their life. Why? Because it's the truth of God that brings, that brings life. You realize, have you thought about this, the direct connection between truth and life? What did Jesus say? What is he? He says, I am the way, the truth, and be life. If we take the truth away from ourselves, what are we cutting ourselves off from? We're cutting ourselves off from the life. If we get to a point where we turn a deaf ear to the truth and we no longer want to hear the things that at times are hurtful to us, not hurtful in the emotional sense, but they're hurtful because they cause guilt in us because we realize that we are sinning. If we get to the point where we no longer want to hear the truth, then we are cutting ourselves off from the life. What do we need to do? What do we need to continue doing to make sure that the life remains with our with our family? What do we need to do maybe to restore a portion of the life maybe we have lost? Well, restoring the life of the church, I will tell you this much, involves every member. It involves every member working together. Membership in a local congregation, in a local church, is more than a seat on a pew and a name on a roll. It's actively working in, in, the, in the kingdom of God. We need no other example than to turn to Acts chapter 2. When you think about the beginning of the church, in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 41, do you remember what happened? The day of Pentecost, they, the, the, the apostles preached the sermon, and 3,000 were added on that day. Beginning in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 41. It says, so then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day they were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' uh, teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing with them all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity, 
praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Notice the, for lack of a better, for lack of a better term, the teamwork that was happening here. Everyone was selling their things. Everyone was together. All were together breaking bread from house to house. Over in chapter 4, beginning in verse 32, uh, we continue along with the same thought. The congregation of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Not one of them claimed anything belonging to, uh, to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. What had they done? They had all gathered together and they realized we're, we're a family. We're all going to work together. Everyone was pitching in to make sure that everyone was taken care of. You've got to remember, the day of Pentecost, people had come to Jerusalem from all over the place. And there were people there who didn't probably plan to stay much longer, but yet they were remaining there in Jerusalem. So what did everybody do? They said, if we're going to all be here together, we've all got to chip in, we've all got to work for it. And so everybody came together, and everybody, everybody put forth their effort. If a congregation is going to continue to thrive, if a congregation is going to continue to have life, it's going to involve every member. It's going to involve every one of us putting forth our effort. It's going to involve every one of us using the talents that God has provided us. If a local church is going to, going to continue to thrive, every last member must be involved. Because God has blessed us all with talents. God has blessed us all with abilities. Shall we all use them as we maintain the life of our congregation? It involves demanding truth and accepting nothing less. When someone stands before you, whether it be me or Edwin or whoever it may be, our demand must be speak to us the truth even when it hurts. Because if we cut ourselves off from the truth, we are so severing ourselves from the life that Christ gives us. congregation that has life in Christ involves, is involved in active service. I can think of no better example than that of the, the Thessalonians. You look at the, the, the letter that Paul writes to them in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning at, or in, in verse 3, here's what he mentions of them. He says, he says, he's constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus in the presence of our God and Father. Just get down to verse 7. So that you become an example to all the brethren of Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that you have no need, or so that I have no need to say anything. Chapter 4, beginning in verse 9. Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But I urge you, brethren... Excel still more. You look at the church at Thessalonica, and what were they doing? They were doing everything that Paul had instructed. They were doing as much as they could. Their, their reputation had gone forth in Macedonia and Achaia. Paul says, I have no need to speak to you about this or this because you're out doing it. But what did he tell them? Excel still more. Because what did he realize? What did he want them to understand? that the active service in the kingdom of God is a necessity for, for this group of people, for that local church. It's a necessity for our congregation. Living churches are active churches. Just like living Christians are active Christians, living churches are active churches. 
Active in what way? Active in unifying the body. Active in edifying one another. Active in glorifying God in our worship. Active in supplying the needs of those who are in need. Active in evangelizing the lost. In so many ways, these two points are, are these two points run parallel to each other. Because just like there's always work to do in the in our individual Christian life, there's always work to do for us as a congregation. There's always more that we can do. There are always people out here who are lost. There are always those who need to be built up. There's always a time to stop and to glorify God. I'm right up on my ten minutes over. So I'm going to stop for this minute. But I want you to stop for a minute. I want you to think. Think back now. Put yourself back in that place where Ezekiel was. And thinking about God taking those bones and bringing them back to life. Just try and picture that in your mind. And now think about our own life and our own service to God, both as, both as individual Christians and as a congregation of God's people. Are we laying there? Are, are we the, the sun-baked, dried bones that are laying there that need to be brought back to life? If we are, there are things that we can do. As a congregation of God's people, there are things that we can do. But as, as individual Christians, there are definitely things we can do. If we need to have our life restored, if we need to be have that breath of life, that, that, that energizing breath breathe back into us, There are definitely things that we can do, and it begins by by reestablishing our relationship with God. He is the breath of life. And so if we if we've allowed our sins to separate us from God, then what we need to do is we need to eliminate those sins from our life and we need to pray for his forgiveness. And that breath can come into us. But if, but if you're not a Christian this morning, I, I, say, I, I say this as, as lovingly and as kindly as I know how. Your life is in danger. Because you're outside the body of Christ. The only way to have that breath of life brought into you is by being baptized into Christ. Having His blood to, to wash your sins away, you become one of the children of God, and then you are one of His. And He is there love you. He is there to comfort you. He is there to forgive your sins. He is there to push you on on your on your your journey to heaven. Can we help you this morning? Is there anything that we can do for you? If so, please come forward as together we stand and sing.